Well, hello, you beautiful people. Are you feeling saucy? Well, cover me in poo and call me German. No, you don't. Uh, your ears do not deceive you. We're back. Oh, yes. Now, lots of things have happened since last we spoke, chief among them being that the strange and deadly boys, and I'm one of them, Christopher Clayton. You'll hear from the other one in a short while, but he can bloody well wait. Uh, the boys have gone up in social standing by upgrading our equipment. We now have bastard hard fucking road mics and mixers. Mm. We're operating with the big boys now. We're on their level. Uh, the likes of the Good Sex podcast and uh, Daniel Bibcock's How I Broke My Own Face. You know that one. The famous podcast. Uh, my dad wrote a porno. Ah, more like I can barely hear what you're saying about your filthy and depraved dada. Because it sounds like shit compared to the strange and deadly show. Hmm. Oh, blimey. It's hot in here. I'm sweatier than uh, Gary Glitter was when he dropped that computer into PC world. Woo! Stress. Stress, boy. Anyway, admittedly, I'm now more or less on the breadline. Since I bought this mixer, Tom had to pawn off his Rondo award. Mm, that he got for uh, having a sexy voice, I presume. Um... The content doesn't match the reward, so we don't know how that was achieved. Uh, that much we know. Uh, so that's gone. So he could afford all this crap, but he's applying for another one this year. Why stop at one uh, when you can have all the glory? Um, what else is happening before we start the show? I don't know. I'm rambling, really. I'm, I'm pretty much on the verge of a heart attack, which is a kick in the dick. I'll be honest with you about that. I've started eating healthier. I'm losing weight. I'm still no closer to being a productive or timely podcaster, though. I'm a fucking disgrace, and I should be eradicated, and hopefully I will be. Uh, Tom, oh, dear Tom, he's become all about that vegan lifestyle, that vegan life, where um, once he was, I mean, you know this about him, you've seen the pictures, uh, he was quite beefy, he used to eat cutlets of raw meat, now he's bloody there drinking, like, watercress smoothies that look like Swamp Things come. Um, where perhaps he once resembled a nice big juicy T-bone steak. You'd just love to get your teeth into him. Uh, now he's more like uh, cabbage head, celery stick arms, uh, green bean fingers, and uh, a carrot for a dick, I reckon. Uh, please welcome to the mic, the new expensive mic that we both now own that makes us better than most people, Mr. Tom Elliott. Let's get one thing straight, Chris. I'm still right. 100% beefcake, even if I'm not eating beefcake anymore. So thank you for that. I see you got all your little swears out, didn't you, in your little intro, because it's been a while, so you had to do that. <laughs> but I will let you off, because it's good to be back on the Strange and Deadly show. And um, we've got, a, a, I guess, a couple of things to talk about before we get going, because... Um, I can't actually remember the last thing we put out. I think I put out that tribute to Joe Pilato. Yeah, without me. Yeah. I did that. I was still well, waiting for the call on that. Well, you know, dragging you to the mic these days is like fucking pulling teeth. So cool, I just had to difficult man go by myself. But I think before that, the thing we might have spoke about was Strange and Deadly's television terror. And we had this plan. We were going to do part of it on Patreon, part of it on here, this, that, and the other. And I think we need to kind of face facts that that's, that's probably not going to happen. That's dead. But we have another couple of things in mind, don't we? We won't say what that is, but the first order of business is finishing the list, isn't it? It is. Although I think it's fair to say, Tom, 
based on my track record, anything that we start that involves me is probably not going to get finished. Uh, I've come to accept that now. Although we're going to give it a damn good go with The Strange and Deadly Show because, yes, indeed, we are back for the foreseeable future. We're not sort of going to do an episode and then bugger off again for a while, hopefully. Uh, we've put our superhero podcast, Lost in the Omniverse, to bed for the time being. We are going to go back to it, but for now, we want to finish off the section three list, you know, that what it was all about from the very beginning. Mm. What we want to actually do is finish up this section three list because look, uh, we've dragged this thing out for a long time and listen, I'll take 99% of the blame for that. Uh, things aren't really going out and it's because of me. And there are lots of different reasons for that. Some of them are unavoidable, some of them less unavoidable, but uh, look, we're going to do the best that we can, and I'm certainly committed. Now that we've got all this brand new posh gear, Tom, mm -hmm. I'm getting, you know, I'm excited. I'm actually excited for the first time in a long time to be podcasting again. And uh, we're going to try our best to finish the Strange and Deadly show, and then we'll figure out where we're going to go from there. Like Tom said, we're not going to tell you what that is just now. But um, I have sort of missed talking about these kinds of movies, Tom. You know, we've been kind of stuck in the comic book world for a while, and we really enjoy that, obviously. That's a big passion of ours. But it is nice to come back to the scuzzier side of life. It is. You know, this is part of who we are. This is part of us as movie fans. We've always been this way. I think this Section 3 list has been a bit of a slog because of the films that were on it, but sometimes it's been a joy as well. We found some things that... We didn't know existed that have been good some has been just mind-numbingly bad and there's been some old favorites on there as well but you're right i, I want to get back into um horror a bit you know i've missed it and that's where our plan for the strange and deadly show is headed a bit more horror we're not going to commit to any big lists anymore once we finish this one because we'll just be setting ourselves up to fail but we have Maybe some ideas for smaller, concise things we can do that, that we'll get to. But you're right. I, I want to get back into the horror, the scuzzier side of things again. Because you are like a filthy, fucking depraved dude. People don't know that because they listen to the Twilight Zone podcast where you're like, ooh, hello, Chuck. Welcome to the Rod Serling show. And you're all nice and everything. But I know the truth about the things you get up to, buddy boy. And, you know, I remember our... just <laughs> called a man who's you know, a few years older than me, buddy boy. So that's a, that's a lot. That's an achievement in life, isn't it? So, um, what are you up to, by the way, you chewing on some basil or something? What you, what's going on? No, you? just chilling, just sitting here, listening to your lovely voice. Got a bowl of rabbit food near you. If I did, you would be wearing it. I, <laughs> I certainly would. So, hey, listen, I love a cherry tomato as much as anybody. So listen, I'm on your side, buddy. Um, but like I was saying, you know, I've missed doing this sort of thing with you. Um, I think we're very good at it. And I think we're good at the superhero stuff as well. But, you know, this is where our roots are, Tom. Mm -hmm. And what better, what better a way to return to horror than talking about two films that have got nothing to do with horror? <laughs> Uh, here on episode 34 of The Strange and Deadly Show. A show with no theme, Tom. I believe this is our first show with no perceivable theme at all. Well, that was the thing. When I put the list together, I tried to pair them up. There was a couple of films left, and it was these two. And mm. you, you could say, well, you could have paired that one up with something else, and that's right, but then that would leave that one out, odd one out, and that kind of thing. So we were left with these two, and I'll be honest, man, and I'll get into it a bit more when we talk about the films themselves. 
But I'll be honest, I wasn't looking forward that much to talking about these ones, and I'll explain that when we get there. Well, he's foolish. You're a foolish boy. But we'll get into that as we go along, Tom. Why don't you tell us about the films? Well, it's two films. The first one is called The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, which is an Australian film. Maybe the first on the list. I'm not too sure. And the Hmm. second is Shogun Assassin. Now, I'd never even heard of The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith. I always get the name wrong. And it (laughs) is um, a film that... I didn't even know about Shogun Assassin. I knew a bit about, I actually knew more about its original form. So I guess we'll get into that a bit later on as well. But, you know, in a strange way, I suppose you could say they marry up. There are are a couple of similarities there, which we'll get into as well. Mm, Interesting. Okay. We'll definitely get into that. Now, The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, Tom, is an Australian film. That is what we're going to kick it off with. So uh, I'm just going to get this out here and now. Uh, Struth Copper, put another shrimp on the barbie. Cold blimey, there's... Oh, dear, I've gone cockney, Tom. It's falling apart already. Uh, Oh, there's a Sheila over there. Oh, blimey, what have you done with your roux, you schoolie? that enough? Spot on, mate. The Australian <laughs> listeners will love that. We haven't got any Australian listeners, so <laughs> I think we've only got about six listeners and they all write in. All right, Tom, so enough of the tomfoolery that you brought to this. Uh, why don't you tell us about The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith? Okay, The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, released in 1978 and also known as <laughs> The Crisis of Jimmy the Blacksmith, The Ballad of Jimmy Nail. <laughs> The crust of Breddy the loaf, the booze of Jeremy the drunkard, and the butter of churning pastry. And these titles are not real, and they were invented by Christopher Clayton, and I'd only just read them right now, Mm -hmm. which is why I'm laughing. Um, It's directed by Fred Shapisi. Did you make that name up as well? I did, I did, I'm afraid. Shapoopy, instead, but that would have been disrespectful. Yes. Uh, starring Tommy Lewis, Freddie Reynolds, Angela Punch McGregor. <laughs> did she? <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, Peter okay. Carroll and many, many more. We should get McGregor's side of the story. Okay. I better not laugh now because, to be honest, it's not exactly that much of a uh, funny film. You wouldn't play it at your birthday party, would you? But it goes like this. The plight <laughs> of the indigenous Australians is illustrated from the very beginning as we witness their ill-treatment at the hands of the white people who employ them. Jimmy Blacksmith is one such person, though born of a union between his Aboriginal father and a white mother. He works for the Reverend Neville and his wife Martha, but wants to venture out and work as hard as possible to build a career and eventually take a wife. Neville and Martha agree to provide him with a good reference, and so he sets out. His first job building fences ends when his Irish employer, chooses not to pay him his full salary, arguing that he hadn't dug the posts improperly. Jimmy knows that he has and is fired from the job. The next position is taken up with the local constable, Farrell, who views Aboriginals in a negative light. Nonetheless, he brings Jimmy to an Aboriginal encampment where he attacks some of the residents over the death of a white man there recently. Jimmy decides to leave the job when a friend of his is arrested for the murder and is later murdered himself by Farrell in a drunken rage, with the rape of that man also heavily implied. Farrell asks Jimmy to dispose of the body, 
and burn all of the clothes to cover up the murder. Incensed, Jimmy leaves and secures another job working at a farm for the newbie family. Facing racism wherever he goes, he nevertheless digs his heels in at the farm, and while working there, he meets a white woman named Gilda Marshall. The two have sex and decide to marry. Was that in the same sort of meeting they have sex and then they decide to get married well pretty much i mean that's, that's the, way, the way it plays out in the film is that they have sex and in the next scene they've uh she's his fiance so it doesn't take long tom doesn't take long that's the australian way gilda mm. ends up becoming pregnant and gives birth while assisted by the newbie family to jimmy's embarrassment the child ends up being fully white showing him that the baby is not his he continues to stay with gilda however and carries on working for the family and the farm. Jimmy's brother Mort and his uncle, Tabidji, come to visit Jimmy and decide to stick around to help, much to the displeasure of the family, who view them as pests. Mr. Newby decides to hold back groceries from Gilda, but offers her a cup of tea inside the house. While inside, the family tell Gilda that she should leave Jimmy. She later tells Jimmy this, causing him to react in anger and dismay. He confronts Mr. Newby angrily, eventually deciding on a plan to scare the family alongside Mort and his uncle. The scare plan involves Jimmy and Tabidji entering the house while the men are all away, using hatchets to provoke them. However, things quickly go awry when Jimmy begins butchering women. Tabidji reluctantly joins in. The two of them slaughter all but one young child in a cot, who Jimmy gives a fruitcake to, before departing. Knowing that they will be wanted for the murders, Jimmy, Gilda, Mort and his uncle decide to go on the run. Shortly thereafter, Jimmy tells Gilda that she will be better off without him, and to take the baby and go to a public road, so that she can be rescued. He declares that he has started a war. Tabidji stays behind and is later captured by the men, who are now on the hunt for the Aborigines who murdered the family. It falls to Jimmy and Mort to take to the road, with Jimmy in particular seeking revenge against everyone who ever did him wrong. You must promise to stay away from those drunken rouseabouts. I promise. That crowd makes me feel sick, Mr. Neville. If you do fall in with them, they will certainly lead you astray. You will not be able to get a job. And if you do, you will not be able to keep it. I promise, Mr. Neville. I don't want to know him. You and Miss Neville have given me good education. Now I've got to start working. So as I can get some property, get some money. So I can get married to a nice girl. Respectable. A nice girl from a farm of good stock. Then your children would be only quarter caste. And your grandchildren only one eighth caste. Scarcely black at all. Okay, Chris, so the biceps of Johnny Muller, what do you think of this one? The guitar of Johnny Muller? <laughs> well, Tom, this is an interesting film, isn't it? Mm. You know, you read about it. I knew nothing about this film, um, be, well, really until a couple of weeks ago. I mean, I'd heard bits and pieces about it. One thing that was that was announced a couple of months ago, I think it was, is that they are doing a, and we're gonna, we'll talk about this in more detail at the end of the review, but they're re-releasing this on Blu-ray uh, in the UK as part of the Masters of Cinema series, Eureka Video doing that. Mm. And when you hear that announcement, you go, ooh, okay, so this must be, to include that within the Masters of Cinema series, it must be a film of, of some repute. 
so it's it is interesting that it's somehow ended up on this dodgy list of ours that we're working through, yeah. this scummy list that this film has somehow ended up on it. And when you look at this film, you look at the context of it, it's considered one of the, the critically one of the, the best Australian films of all time. Okay. So again, it, it, it's, it's a really unique, unique case. And I said to you before we started recording that this is probably the only film on this list that we've covered so far where I would say, it, I don't think it really belongs on this list. You know, it obviously has some historical importance to the people of Australia, to the critics, the film critics of Australia. Mm. And yeah, it, it's a hard going film. Uh, you have to say that it is not fun to watch. Uh, it has good things about it. It has things about it that I'm not super fond of that we'll get into detail on as, as we go along. Uh, but it's not a joyous viewing, you know. If you if you want a good pick me up, this is not, you know, this is not going to replace Love Actually. If that's the kind of thing you're into, and you're thinking, I really fancy a nice film to watch on Christmas Day with my family, I'm going to put the chant of Jimmy Blacksmith on, and uh, well, I suppose revel in the suffering of man, and in particular, you know, the indigenous people of Australia. I know a, a little bit about, not very much at all. So for me, this was a. a, a an interesting insight into that period of time. This is based on a true story as well. This character wasn't named Jimmy Blacksmith, but this character very much existed. And some of the things that happened here are very similar. The film was based on a book as well. Right. So, you know, it's got a lot of things going for it in terms of its reputation as a film, difficult watch. And I think there are flaws in there, but it's a fascinating subject. I have to say, and I'll leave it at that for now and, and let you get your overview in. I guess, you know, I said earlier on that I wasn't particularly looking forward to watching this one. And I think, you know, it's touching on where you are there. It's not much of a fun watch, but not every movie is. Some of them are worthy. Some of them are there to educate, to tell us a story and possibly about the plight of a certain people, that kind of thing. So I'm not arguing that the film shouldn't exist. It absolutely should. I think where we are in the world at the moment, you know, with a certain strand of person crawling out from their rocks and and kind of spreading hate in the world. I suppose I don't particularly want to watch much stuff like this in my entertainment at the moment. You know, I'm a bit more about escapism. I'm not throwing Schindler's List on of a Saturday night and sitting and having a, (laughs) a glass of wine. I'm throwing on, you know, the Avengers or something, that's kind of where my head is at. So yeah. that's why I wasn't particularly looking forward to watching this one. But that said, although I watched it sort of grudgingly, you know, it's it's an important film, it's a good film, and I can't take that away from it. It's just the timing of it just wasn't quite right for me. So I guess let's let's get into more of the detail of it. Okay, so... You know, the very beginning of it is showing, I mean, we said it in the synopsis there, you hear from the Reverend and his wife, Martha, you know, they. you're going to hear, you're going to hear two words a lot in this movie. Unfortunately, you're going to hear the words bastard blacks mm. or black bastards. And you hear it a lot. Uh, what you discover as you go through this movie, and it begins right from the get go. You know, I think that, I think the words like black bastards or, is like I think that's the first line of dialogue in the movie. Right. So 
that sets it up for you right from the very beginning that these indigenous people, these Aborigines are treated like, I mean, second class citizens is, is probably not even what it is. It's probably third class or treated like the lowest of the low. They're there to be enslaved. Mm. They're there to be used. Uh, their employment is solely based on what the employer can get out of them rather than what they, rather than them taking anything away from it of any significant value and you know we meet this young kid who grows up with the aborigines and we we see that he's a he's what is referred to in the film as a half caste kid so he's you know part white part aborigine you know that struck a slight chord with me in that i'm half you know quote unquote half caste myself i'm you know part indian african and part white because my father's white and my mother was you know and from south africa so you know that you 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 understand a little bit of that. You understand that his placement within the Aboriginal society is also kind of weird, but they accept him much more than the white people do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we just get to, you know, the very early scenes here, we get to to meet him, you know, grown up played by Tommy Lewis, who was himself, of course, an Aboriginal actor. Um, several of the people in here were real indigenous people who were, you know, within the acting profession. And uh, Tommy Lewis playing Jimmy Blacksmith there. And, you know, you played a clip there of, of him speaking with the reverend who's going to give him a reference to go out and find a job. And even there, although Neville and Martha seem, you know, reasonably OK with him and, and keen on him, possibly for what they can get out of him rather than, than any kind of real affection, they still refer to people of colour in a, in a negative way. Um, you see that right from the beginning, don't you? Yeah, and that's what's really kind of interesting about the the first half of the movie. Really, Jimmy is such a bubbly character. He's he's really quite likable in the first half, and he has a very sunny disposition. Even though th there is this sort of aspect of his relationship with all these white people, in that they will often throw out casual slurs against him or other Aboriginal people. But he, he just kind of brushes them off because, you know, it's almost like he's he's aspiring to be like them. He wants that house and the family. You know, if that's the price he has to pay for having to listen to these things, he just lets it slide off his shoulders and he goes along with his life kind of thing. And they accept him probably more than most Aboriginal people because he's like that, because he's trying to fit in more um, and because they can just just say all the, this stuff so it's this real uncomfortable sort of middle ground between usual out and out racism of of slinging insults at, at someone who who stands there and is insulted by it instead it's this sort of middle ground where they sort of throw out and some of them are actually quite fond of jimmy in their way you know they'll be kind yeah. to him on the one hand, but on the other hand, they'll they'll throw out a this they're still treating them like a second class citizen or even lower, I guess. So it's um it's an it's an uncomfortable watch because it's sad to see Jimmy just kind of taking it because he wants a better life for himself, you know? But he yeah. he's quite a a likable character too. I think it's also uncomfortable because you know that these things really did happen. You know, this is reflective of the way that and, you know, not just here in Australia, but of course, we look at the, the slavery that went on in, in America. And we know that, you know, this film, I suppose, draws parallels with 
another film like 12 Years a Slave, uh, which is, you know, it's it's about a period of time in history that I'm sure would ra- they would rather forget it and uh-huh. pretend that it didn't happen. But we've got to cover it because it's something that did happen and this happened as well. And, you know, it. I mean, a lot of the, you know, the white people in this are quite brazen in the way that they treat these people. You know, they're always calling him Jacko all the time. Jacko, you know, there's a lot now... That's one thing about this movie that's a little bit difficult is that if you if your ear isn't attuned to the lingo that they use, yeah. you know, like some of the um, the some of the exchanges between the indigenous people, I couldn't quite make out because I couldn't get a, a handle on on what it, not everything obviously, but some of it I couldn't work out because they're speaking in a very particular way that is relevant to their culture uh-huh. and doesn't necessarily come across to somebody like myself who comes from North London, you know. And and probably I would imagine you, you you may have had that that issue as well, Tom. It's uh, your ear has to get attuned to the fact that you're also watching a film made in Australia. There's a lot of Australian lingo there, and mm-hmm. despite me poking fun at, at you know the uh, Australian cliches, you know none of that is there. But there is language there that has to be. You know that it's insulting towards Jimmy, but you not you don't necessarily know quite how you know quite what the meaning of it is because it's it's relevant to the Australian culture rather than ours. That's right. That's right. It's a bit of Australian slang and that kind of thing. And I think that's what we come across all the time. I mean, even when I went to America and lived in America for some time, there's the odd thing where people were scratching their heads, but vice versa, you know, people would ask me, oh, do you want to do this? Or do you want to eat this? Or, and I'd be like, what are you talking about? So it, it always happens. But yeah, when you're really immersed in this uh, historical Australian time, Sometimes it, it can be a bit tricky. One of the yeah. um, one of the interesting things as well is that Jimmy takes a wife. Did I miss something? Because I would imagine for a white woman to marry an Aboriginal man would be looked down on quite a bit. So was mm. the point of this that she was pregnant and she was sort of pregnant out of wedlock and she was kind of damaged goods in in their eyes in society so they were like well we'll marry you up with him because Mm. at least you'll be married you're only married to an aborigine but at least you'll be married to someone and you know it'll still be shameful but it's not as shameful as having a baby out of wedlock was that was that the point of it i don't know (laughs) (laughs) no i mean you know i'm being facetious obviously but you know i i the truth is i really don't know because one of the issues i have with this movie and it 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 clips it right into what you're saying there is that this is a movie where a lot of things happen and there's not necessarily a lot of connective tissue between those things happening so you know jimmy will be at one job and it'll go wrong Mm. and he'll storm off and then he'll be at another job or you know like take for example what happens when I will get back around to what you're saying, Tom, take, take for example, the position he takes up with the constable. He spends a bit of time there. Things go down there. Some bad things happen. He burns the body and the clothes and everything. And then he's working at the farm Yeah. and there's no sort of connective tissue between those things. And the same applies to him meeting this woman. You know, he's, this woman is having like a little bit of a, uh, <laughs> I was going to say diddle, but that's something else, isn't it? That's uh, female masturbation. So I'm getting the no, as it were, understand the terms. Okay. Um, he, he, she's having a little bit of a of a, a thing going on with the chef 
and then Jimmy walks in and she's it's funny because that character when he like he sort of finds her around the back and everything and they end up having having sex all she does for a good couple of minutes is just giggle mm. and I thought have they really like hired this woman just to come in and giggle but no they end up giving her lines and as you say you know, it's never actually explained. This is the whole point that I'm getting to. It's never explained why she chooses to marry him. She becomes his fiance. He announces that later. Why the one night of sex was enough to, uh, you know, to make that a reality. Mm. I don't know. Yeah, I do think one of the flaws of this movie is that it narratively is a little bit too quick in, in snapping us from thing to thing to thing to thing without really threading everything together properly, which is one of my problems with it. But... Uh, nonetheless, somehow, Tom, they decide they're going to become married and she is pregnant. And, um, you know, old Jimmy is is happy. You know, the thing is, you're absolutely right. The first half of this movie, Jimmy's a likable character. My God, is he a put upon man? You know, yeah. it, it really, I mean, everybody treats him like shit, don't they? Everybody, you know, apart from this girl, really. Almost everybody treats him as if he's beneath them. Mm-hmm. And... You know, and this goes for, by the way, for the other indigenous people in the movie as well. It's not just limited to him, but it is interesting that even though he, you know, he wants to do good and he wants to work hard in his life, he will go as far as to work for the lo- the local constable, the uh, guy named Farrell, and he does go to that camp and he kind of aids in the attack, doesn't he? Which is something that would have been against his nature, but he's forced to do it as part of this drive to be a good employee, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I guess the the shine starts to come off Jimmy for for the white folk because his brother turns up and, and his uncles around and and it's like they'll they'll kind of tolerate Jimmy but they don't want to tolerate more than more than Jimmy if you like yeah so the shine starts to come off him a bit but the thing is you know, things do start to go a bit wrong for Jimmy and the way people are treating him and that kind of thing. But, you know, let's let's get to the point where I guess the second half of the movie kicks into action because even though the shiners come off Jimmy a bit and people start to be a bit more aggressive towards him, that kind of thing, he doesn't really show many outward signs of that getting to him as such for for a while. But then when it gets to breaking point where he can't get groceries to feed his kid, um, he just kind of snaps. But there's there's no, there doesn't seem to be much of a lead up. And I know the copy that we watched wasn't great. So unless there was some subtle face acting there that we missed, I just felt that, you know, Jimmy goes round to uh, the house of his employer while he is out and he, he ends up, you know, just massacring his wife and uh, the kids and so on. But it just seems to come a bit out of the blue. What What did you think of that? Well, first of all, you're right about the, the face, I think, aspect. There are parts of this, the video that we watched, there are parts of it that look like Minecraft. <laughs> like it was pixely. So, you know, there are a few bits there that we, we couldn't quite get. Uh, ironically, we... You know, acquired that before the Blu-ray release was announced, so it's not out yet. Yeah. But um, yeah, it, it is. You know, what seems to set him off is when his wife comes back and says, "Well, look, they invited me in for tea, and they told me I should leave you hmm. because you're no good and you, you know you're a savage and all this sort of stuff." And that really seems to set him off. He goes to confront the boys. 
the boys. He goes to confront the. I don't know why I did that. The, <laughs> he goes to confront the boys at the uh, at the farm. They're in the barn. They're doing something with a cow. We don't know, Tom. We really don't know what they're doing in there. Could be something nefarious. Perhaps he was right to have come in there and confronted them at that point. Uh-huh. All I'm saying is it's possible there was some bestiality going on. We'll never know, Tom. I, I don't know which cut of the film we got. Perhaps that was left in. I'm not asking for it. I'm just saying it's a possibility. He comes in there and he threatens Mr. Newby. Okay. And uh, it's like, okay, well, we'll see how it goes. And then he creates the plan with Mort and his uncle to scare them. Now, this is the interesting thing. When he goes in there with the hatchet, it's not like it becomes like a bottle film where it's just him in a room with these people deciding, you know, weighing up the pros and cons of of murdering these people because it's a fairly big decision to go from having done nothing like that in your life to suddenly taking somebody's life. Uh, That decision is made (laughs) within about, what, 10 seconds? And he starts just axing people to death. And, you know, uh, Uncle Tabidji is in there as well and he kind of reluctantly joins in. You know, he says later on in the movie after he's caught that it's just... You know, this is not verbatim, but he says, you know, it's something that just happened in an instant. It wasn't something that they planned. It just happened. But this is the interesting thing. I suppose you could say that this kind of sets off the second half of the movie where he and his brother Mort become fugitives. And the question for me becomes, how much do you now sympathize with them? Because Jimmy and Mort, I mean, Mort is... Mort seems like quite a good guy who doesn't mm. really want trouble, but is kind of roped into it by Jimmy. And Jimmy kind of changes, really, where he's empowered by the fact that, you know, as he says to to Gilda, um, his wife, you know, she's got the baby there, and he says to her, well, look, you know, you'll be better off without me. And she goes off and, you know, of course, is, is rescued. Um, he says that, he, you know, he's declaring war. And... It very much becomes about Jimmy's mission with more along for the ride. But how it, it's a difficult one because you totally understand why he's fed up. He's been a downtrodden man for so many times. People treading on his neck all the time. People making fun of him, saying racist things, degrading him, making him feel less than a person. Yet yeah. he has gone in and murdered a family, young children. And is now on this, you know, revenge trip where he's going to kill anybody who ever did him wrong. The question for me then became about how much I was willing to sympathise with him, and I found it quite difficult to like him anymore, while at the same time acknowledging the reason for his anger. I think I'm on the same page with that. You know, my heart bleeds for poor Jimmy, who's who's put up with that all these years. But even if the film kind of you know had an aspect to it where he's trying to put on this face all the way through the first half but you can see that whenever someone says something nasty to him or racist to him there's a bit behind the eyes which is saying oh god here we go again yeah but there just doesn't seem to be that you know so when he snaps it's just like hey i just really enjoy killing people and he just sort of really goes for it and yeah, your sympathy for him kind of goes with that as well. So I, I must admit that the second half of the movie, you know, I, I enjoy a bit of violence, but this isn't really usually the kind of violence that I'm into. It it did kind of drag a bit for me, the second half. He's just sort of going mm. around, killing a lot of people, 
and so on and so forth. And it, it just started to drag a bit for me. Yeah, for me, the best part of the movie is, is the first half, really, mm. before he commits the murders. And then because Jimmy changes into almost a completely different person. And like I say, he's empowered and we understand the reason for his anger. And I think anybody who's in that situation, anybody who's been accosted in that way, who's been, you know, racially insulted, been made to feel like less than dirt is going to feel like they have a, they have an ax to grind. Uh (laughs) I'm not being literal when I say that, but that is what he did. The problem is that, you know, the idea is that you become better than than them mm. and he he kind of he starts to take on a bit of a anti-white rhetoric himself yeah and you know having yeah these bloody whites and all, all the rest of it so I, I don't know that that makes him any better than them if he's just becoming like them but the difference is that where they're kind of enslaving him and using him to get work to get cheap work done and paying him very very little he's taking out his anger the use of violence and murder. I don't know that that makes him any better than them within that context. It is, and he's quite, you know, he himself is quite brazen. He's pretty ruthless as well. He becomes very unsympathetic and unkind as the rest of the movie goes on. And you have Mort there who, you know, there's at one point where they, um, he turns up there and he kills like somebody who he used to work for. I think it was the Irish guy. He goes in there and he murders his wife and child. Yeah, yeah. Who did nothing to him, you know. Um, it was the Irish guy who who was horrible to him and who kept money from him for the work that he did. And then you start to think, okay, so you're just sort of killing without much of a conscience. So it really feels like Jimmy has snapped and in a way that I think made it quite difficult for me to sympathise with him, despite sympathising with the plight of the indigenous people, which I very much did and, and still do, and understanding his motivation in terms of, of wanting to being fed up with the abuse that he was taking, the fact that he then becomes this sort of violent killer who really has no regard for any life that he chooses to take, even the person who he kidnaps later, the uh, school teacher, who is sort uh-huh. of one of the more reasonable people, who kind of treats him with a decent amount of respect, although he's scared for his life. Um, Jimmy does not treat him with any respect. You know, it's Mort who who's really kind of has the heart and the conscience to understand that, he, that the things they're doing are wrong. You know, he he runs away from... Jimmy calls him the devil man. Um, yeah. So it's I'm conflicted in that aspect of it, really, Tom. I, I find it very difficult to um, to side with Jimmy's murderous tendencies in this. Yeah, I mean, the language I, I can completely understand. You know, if you are downtrodden and marginalised by, by a certain group of people, then... I'm not saying it's right or or whatever, but it's understandable that he he's then going to be like white this, white that, you know, because all he's he's really known through his life is either insults or being treated as a second class citizen, and then they're denying his child food and so on. So that aspect of it, I can understand, you know, that he, he's saying these things in anger. But you're right; once he's he's just sort of killing indiscriminately, then you're all that that sympathy goes out of the window really it does yeah and i, I and also like i say he becomes a different person so it, it's and less likable as a result of the things that he's doing so it's it's you know he even kind of treats his brother not very well and he doesn't treat the school teacher very well and and then eventually he decides to go off on his own you know the school teacher tells him well look mort is a good guy and he hasn't killed anybody yet he's shot 
a woman, but he's he's not actually killed anybody. And even then, he he, he shot the woman and then apologised to her for doing it. You know, yeah, so yeah. the school teacher says to him, "Well, look, you're actually kind of dragging him down. Um, why don't you bugger off?" Essentially, and Mort manages to bring that school teacher back and and rescues him. Even then, nobody's grateful for the fact that he did that. They just want him off the property. Uh-huh. You know, yeah. And uh, unfortunately, Mort. Uh, does not survive. He ends up being killed because what what happens is once Jimmy kills the the women in the newbie family, um, the men decide to take revenge. They want to go out hunting for him, and it becomes a big. You know, we didn't say it in the synopsis, but it becomes like a big nationwide thing. You know, the newspapers are full of the the news about it. And Jimmy and Mort, Jimmy in particular, when they kidnap the school teacher, he shows them a newspaper clipping of of how notorious they've become, and uh, Jimmy is delighted by it. Yeah. You know, so it, it's it's difficult because there, there's almost something that kind of there's a switch that turns on there, and he's he kind of becomes psychotic, doesn't he? I think, and and it's difficult to sympathise with with that. You know, it it would be easy for me to sympathise if he then became somebody who was better, or somebody who would manage to rise above those people. You know, and then on their way down, he can kind of be there and say, well, look, this is how you treated me horribly. Uh-huh. Now I'm up at this, you know, I've got this social standing and I'm doing well and I've I've developed myself to a good place and look at where you are now. You're kind of beneath me, uh, but, you know, I'll never treat you badly. If it had gone that way, it wouldn't have fit onto the Section 3 list any more than it does now. In fact, it would have been even less of a good fit, but I think it would have made more sense in terms of Jimmy's growth. As, as we see it here... There's no growth. There's just a kind of a psychotic break and he kills a bunch of people. And I mean, do you want to kind of bring it into the ending or did you have anything more to say? No, no. Let, let's get to the end because I think maybe maybe that is the point of the film that is playing with your sympathy, seeing how far it'll go. Because by the end of it, I suppose my question is, do you sympathize with him by the end because he gets shot in the face? He tries to patch it up using, you know, um, some, it looks like a, a concoction that he, he sort of puts together there and, and smears on his face to try and do it. And in the end, yeah. he, he's quite a sad figure in a jail cell, just in the corner with this mouth wound that just makes him look, you know, really pained in pain. And do we then start to sympathise with him again, I think is the question. Well, I suppose a degree of sympathy in that when you look at it, you look at the big picture of it after seeing that scene, what did any of it accomplish? Mm. You know, at the end of the day, his uncle who was caught has, is going to be hung to death. Uh, Mort died. Uh, his wife, I mean, that, that's a, you know, she'll find somebody else, obviously, but that is... is the things that he did will obviously haunt her life for some time to come. And um, Jimmy ultimately is in a cell waiting to die. And they say, you know, I think the guards or, or someone like that are talking outside and they're saying, you know, it, it won't be, you know, he's got like some extra strong neck muscles or something, but otherwise it won't be any different to any other hanging. Mm. Essentially, what has Jimmy actually achieved by by doing it? When I sit and think about it, all he's done is make if we're looking at it within the context of this fictional story, although it was based on truth, all he's done is make the indigenous people look worse. I think, you know, um, I don't know if I'm being bold to say that because all he's done is, is go on a murder spree rather than do anything to kind of better or to, to 
prove his value to the world. Now, how do you do that? I don't know. You know, that's a that's a, a, another argument in itself. But I don't know that much was achieved. Getting back to your original question, do you sympathise with him a bit more? I mean, maybe he cuts quite a pathetic figure at the end, doesn't he? He's sort of feeble. You know, they blew off like a big chunk of his cheek. So he's got that padded out with, like you say, that concoction. Mm-hmm. And um, he looks like a very weak, fragile man who is due his death. And um, it ends in a, quite an abrupt callous way doesn't it you know like there's no happy ending to any of this yeah i suppose i sympathize for for the man he was you know he was just a good guy just trying to do the best in horrible circumstances he was the victim of racism but he just tried to get on with things he wanted what everyone else had a home a wife a job he didn't want a handout or anything like that but no matter what he did, it, it would never be good enough. There was always going to be someone who just uh, who put something too too insurmountable in his way. So I do sympathise, you know, for the man he was and what he became. But it doesn't really excuse what he did. But you know, I guess if I take away anything, it's the sort of the sliding sympathy of Jimmy Blacksmith. You know, it, yeah. it's kind of what it comes down to. So. So have you got any any last words before we talk about the release information? Yeah, I suppose I just wanted to say that, you know, Tommy Lewis, I think, does a good job. You mm. know, he's an actor I was reading about. Unfortunately, he passed away last year Oh man! Um, of a heart attack, I believe. But he worked with the Indigenous people a lot. He was an actor who worked a lot as well. Um, I'm sure I recognise him from something. Uh, but... You know, he, uh, I think, did a good job in this. I think the acting generally is is pretty decent in this. My my biggest problem with this movie really is that the editing of it is a bit is a bit wild for me. In that it is, it does go from thing to thing to thing, situation to situation to situation, without having much to back it up. It's like a Zack Snyder movie in that way, where it's like, it's like here's a scene, and now here's another scene, now here's another scene, and there's no setup to anything. Um, that I found a bit problematic in this, you know, but um. I, you know, I, I, I liked it. I think it's a good movie. You know, I don't know if I'd watch this again. I mean, that's a question I would ask you. Do you think you could you ever see yourself watching this one again? I don't think so, no. And it, it's a good movie, absolutely. But I think especially where my head is at at the moment, you know, I'm more in, in that escapist mode. But yeah, I don't think I'd watch it again. Yeah, you're like watching Ted and Ted 2, aren't you? Like you're in that <laughs> Maybe not mindset, that watching Anchorman. No <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, it's... um. I think it's good. So I understand why it has so much cultural relevance and importance mm. in Australia, for sure. Even if it's a, it's a rough watch. I'll say that much for it. It's a, it's a rough watch, but uh, a good watch, I think. Um, so, yeah, well, let's get to the release information on this. Uh, the film is being re-released on DVD and Blu-ray on the 26th of August 2019. That's only next month. Uh, by the date of this recording, uh, by Eureka Video in the UK as part of their Masters of Cinema series. Now, Eureka Video are putting out some damn good stuff at the moment. A lot of good Kung Fu, martial arts, uh, samurai uh, stuff, Shambara movies. So um, Eureka doing some good work there. This release will come with two versions of the film, the Australian and international versions. I don't know which one we saw, Tom. Um, I... I think the Australian one is longer, so we probably saw the Australian. Because this film is is five minutes shy of two hours. It's a little bit too long, I think. It could have done with a bit of trimming, I think. 
Um, those two versions, fully restored, an audio commentary, essay booklet, and several features. Our American friends can also enjoy a similar release on the 17th of September this year from Kino Classics, which also has the two cuts of the movie plus a smattering of extras, though not as many as the Eureka release. So, you know, if this if the sound of this film appeals to you, if you perhaps you saw a copy of it on VHS or something many years ago, you've seen, like us, you've seen like a Minecraft potato <laughs> level quality uh, stream of it and you're thinking, hey, you know, I'd like to, to I'd like a proper release of this that's, you know, fully you know, remastered in HD and all the rest of it. This sounds like, this new release sounds like it's going to be for you. Definitely an interesting film that I think deserves its its good critical reception. I, why on earth it's on this list, I don't, I can only assume because of the the murders and even then the murders are not particularly graphic. So it's, it's, it's one of those bizarre things about section three, isn't it? Where you look at it and you go, I don't know what you saw in this that was offensive to you. Perhaps you've, perhaps you find Aboriginal people offensive. I don't know what the reason was, but uh, whatever reason it's there. Um, But it doesn't belong there. In my opinion, I think it deserves a better critical airing than that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So why don't you give us a bit of information about the second film, Chris? Oh well, digga 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 digga. so fucking hard. Oh, Tom, say your heart as well. I ain't saying that, man. Please. Oh, Tom's hard as well. Come on, get in. It's Shogun Assassin, Tom, released in 1980. The original Japanese releases were dated 1972. What? You say? What are you talking about? How can it be released in 1980 and 1972 as well? Shut up. Tell you about it in a minute. God. Also known as, not available, though I read that bit, directed by Robert Houston. Not really, though. Actually directed by Kenji Mitsumi. Hmm. And it's starring Tamizaburu Wakayami as Igami Itu, dubbed by Lamont Johnson, and Akihiro Tomikawa as Daigaro, dubbed by Gibran Evans, among many others. Let's read the synopsis of this one. We hear the delicate tones of a young boy speaking as he tells us the story of his father, Ogami Itu, the shogun executioner. Itu's wife, Azami, was murdered by the evil shogun who is vying for a position as the main executor of the region and who ordered his ninjas to attack and kill the woman. Swearing revenge, Itu makes a dangerous plan. He is to become a wandering ronin who will roam the land preparing for revenge. Two samurai who attack Ogami are swiftly dealt with thanks to his skilled swordplay, though one reminds him, as he is dying, that he is marked for death. The shogun has designs on his eventual elimination, and will send as many enemies as it takes until he is defeated. We learn that Ogami has also taken Daigoro with him, carrying him in his deadly baby carts. Although designed to carry Daigoro, the cart is actually filled with secret deadly weapons that the child himself can help to activate in order to defeat their enemies. We also learn that Ogami gave Daigoro a choice. He offered a sword and a ball to the child. If he moved towards the ball, he would be given a merciful death and allowed to join his mother in heaven. If he moved towards the sword, he would become part of his father's journey, walking the path to hell. Daigoro chooses the sword. Every road is a deadly one for the duo, as samurai and paid assassins come from every direction. However, each one falls at the sword of Agami, whose expertise and skill is virtually unmatched. The shogun soon orders the supreme ninja and her band of female fighters to take out Ogami. Along the way, Ogami decides to take on jobs for other people, acting very much as a ronin for hire. 
It provides them with money and sometimes shelter and food. The Supreme Ninja's fighters attack Ogami, but are no match for him. Neither is the Supreme Ninja herself, who flees after being defeated. Ogami accepts a job to kill the brother of the Shogun, who is being protected by the three skillful Masters of Death. A plan is concocted by Lord Kurogawa to bring in Ogami by going after the affections of his son. He uses the Supreme Ninja to do so. While sheltering, Daigoro hears the voice of a young woman and follows it. He is kidnapped by Kurogawa and the Supreme Ninja, although Ogami finds him and kills Kurogawa, leaving the Supreme Ninja unharmed. They later board a ship to keep an eye on the Masters of Death, who recognise him but do not attack. The ship is later set aflame and Ogami manages to escape with his son and the Supreme Ninja. The three later hole up in a house and share their body warmth. The Supreme Ninja realises that she cannot kill Ogami or his son and is left to report the news to the Shogun who will request her seppuku, suicide. The fight is soon brought to the sand dunes where Ogami and Daigoro prepare for an all-out assault against the Shogun's men as they work towards killing off the Masters of Death and assassinating the Shogun's brother. Daigoro, I have decided to escape. To defy the Shogun. Today I will begin walking the road to hell. But you will choose your own path. chosen the ball by the way just letting you all know um don't fancy a sword really i like balls that's what i have to say about that so uh you've heard that clip there now tom tom tommy elliott a thomas tom elliott now uh let's give some context of course now this film in itself deserves some context but i think before we get really stuck into stuck into that um the context of the film itself because i would like to hear your sort of quote unquote virgin <laughs> overview of it before we we get into all that kind of stuff um my context is that and tom knows this very well and everybody knows this that i'm a huge fan of asian cinema uh martial arts movie chan barra um a film like this which is a jidai geki film which is uh, aka a, a film set in a specific you know an historical period of time in this case it's the edo era so i'm a big fan of these kind of movies samurai movies all sorts of different things like that. Anything Asian, really, I'm, I'm a big fan of. So uh, for me, I, I know, you know, Shogun Assassin is probably the film, next to some of the classic horror films that we've covered, you know, Dawn, you'd like to see Dawn of the Dead, Friday the 13th, those sort of films. Um, this is probably the film I know the best. Uh, so, you know, it's pressure going into it from old Thomas because he's come into it. Now, to give him some context, and you can give this yourself as well, as well Tom, 
you, you, this is not usually your kind of thing. So you ha- I have to know that going in that, you know, I don't know what you think of this movie. Um, so let's get that now and then we'll give some context to the movie itself and what it's comprised of, because all is not quite what it appears to be. Tom, let's get your, your overview of it as a general overview of Shogun Assassin. What are you saying? It's uh, it's interesting that, you know, when we think about Grindhouse, the movies that we've been exposed to, that we think of horror, we think of exploitation, and it's sometimes easy to forget that martial arts movies were a big part of it as well. You know, it wasn't just about the horror movies. So, mm. you know, it, it's important that we, we kind of acknowledge that. Now, that being said... Martial arts movies have never been my thing. It's more that it's more a case of what you're exposed to and what you pick up on than actually disliking them, though. So, this isn't actually my first exposure to the film. Uh, it's my first exposure to it in this form, and I'll let you talk about what its its form actually was uh, originally in a moment, but. A few years ago now, when in the advent of DVDs, the original form of this film was released in a box set. And I saw it and I thought, okay, that looks interesting. You know, and I read a bit about it and I thought, oh, that that seems pretty cool. I want to check that out. And I got this box set and the transfers were so atrocious (laughs) that I, I couldn't even get through the first film. So unfortunately, that is where my exposure to these ended. So it's nice to actually watch this edition and see it looking so good and seeing what was actually on the screen because they were really bad. I can't believe anyone even put them on a DVD. Um, (laughs) But yeah, you know, there's... A, a little sort of gripe I have with it, which we'll get to in a bit. But, you know, considering this is part of that grindhouse experience, imagine being back in those days and you and you go and watching all these violent, bloody films, all these grungy American horrors, the rural horrors and so on. Yes, they were wonderfully violent, but none of them had the class of something like this, you know, the yeah. the choreography just the direction, the composition of some of these shots, you know, there's some really beautiful stuff here that is so streets ahead of anything else that you would be watching in the grindhouse. You know what I mean? This is, this is actually artfully done. And, you know, I, I really dig the movie to be honest and you know what it came from. I'll let you explain in a moment, but it has spared me on to want to, watch that now you know and go and check that out find out how i can do that so yeah you know it was a positive experience for me we'll get into it a bit more but that that's where i'm at right now what about you oh tom oh my little tom uh you've completely justified why i masturbate to your photo every night 
Well, if there's no nah, I'd have said it was a piece of shit, to be honest. You should have said something well, different, shouldn't you? You've re- you've got yourself in, you bang, you bang out of order, Tom. <laughs> you bang out of order. Um, yeah, you know, uh, the thing is, I wanted to give you that time to say all that because I didn't know you were going to say that, but I wanted to give you that time because it would have been very easy for me as, as a, you know, a big fan and, and having, uh, unfortunately, having an encyclopedic knowledge of these sorts of things. Mm these sorts of movies, it would be very easy for me to go, to go, wait a minute, Tom, let me explain the entire context of this whole thing so that you can't get your, can't get a word in edgeways about any of this stuff. And you have, you know, you can't say this negative thing about it because it's this, 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 and this. I didn't want to do that. I wanted you to have a, you know, a very pure kind of view of uh-huh. it from the very beginning. Um, to get, So to give this film that context, as you were saying, and as I was saying earlier, Shogun Assassin is actually an American edit of the first two Lone Wolf and Cub films. So Lone Wolf and Cub was the box set that you picked up. Yeah. And um, was that by An- Anime Ego, I believe, put that out? Possibly. And I'm not even sure it had all of the Lone Wolf and Cub films. It, it had at least right. three, but uh, it right. was a while ago now. Because. Because I've got that a box set that's got all of them in it and the transfers are bad. I mean, at night you can't see anything. Yeah. Like it's really bad, really, really bad. Um. So, yeah, this is an American edit of the first two Lone Wolf and Cub films. Now, those films were originally based on a manga series that was released in Japan in the early ninety uh, early nineteen seventies. Uh, all original six of those of the Lone Wolf and Cub films were actually released within a two year span, nineteen seventy two to nineteen seventy four. And what happened was that the American actor, actor Robert Hewson, he he was in he was known chiefly for his acting work as Bobby in the first two The Hills Have Eyes movies. Now I can't remember who Bobby was, no. but uh, you know, God forbid we upset that one guy who's really upset. With us for, uh, <laughs> you don't know who Bobby is. You don't bloody know who. What you know about samurai movies, but you don't know about Bobby. <laughs> oh, we'd be in terrible trouble. He'd insult my mental health again. So it'd be terrible. He'd get right to my, right to my core <laughs> and stab at me with a dagger. He would. Um, but this actor Robert Hewson, he sought to acquire the rights to the original movie series. He succeeded in doing so, and then he worked alongside his production partner David Wiseman. The two worked on a re-edit of the first two Lone Wolf, Lone Wolf and Cub movies. And what what they did was they took twelve minutes of footage from the first film, which is called Sword of Vengeance, uh, Sword of Vengeance rather, and the rest of the movie is from the second Lone Wolf and Cub movie, which is Baby Carter, The River Sticks. Wow. And then they added in. So there's very little of the first movie that's actually in Shogun Assassin because a lot of the first movie is you know build up for the development of of uh, the Ogami Itsu character. Um, and I guess I can explain more because we haven't even got into the plot yet, Tom. No. So we'll get to that in a minute and then we can kind of go into some of the stuff that's missing from that. They added English dubbing and the Daigoro character was given some actual presence as a narrator because in, in the Lone Wolf and Cub movies, Daigoro doesn't speak right. at all. Um, so um, it's one of those things where, um, and it's happened, it's happened quite a few times, unfortunately, the American film companies get hold of something and they think American audiences are not going to understand this. So we need to add in these things to contextualize everything for you. Um, but using him as a narrator, they explain elements of the plot that were cut from the original, from, from the uh, cut from, you know, they weren't brought over from the original movies. Uh, this re-edit was then given a, a brand new score by Mark Lindsay um, artwork done by Jim Evans, whose son Gibran Evans actually voices Daigoro. It's quite funny, really, to think that you know this artist who works on because the, the artwork for Shogun Assassin is great. There's some really great artwork that was done by Jim Evans. Please look it up online if you've not seen it. And it's just funny to think that like 
he was like, yeah, sure, my son will just voice this son of a, of a killer who goes around. You know, it won't, won't be a problem at all. And, of course, that became iconic in itself. Um, Houston and Wiseman's re-edits so emphasises the bloody violence more. It cuts some of the historical and political elements um, of the those two Lone, Lone Wolf and Cub movies. The producers felt that they would be less relevant or understandable to an American audience. Um, they struck a deal with Roger Corman's New World Pictures Company to distribute the film and became an instant hint, as you say, in grindhouses. You know, imagine seeing this in a scuzzy cinema on the big screen. It must have seemed, to people who weren't exposed to Asian cinema, it must have seemed like something out of this world, you know, like something not of this earth. Yeah. Um, Lone Wolf and Cub was later, I should say, was also later made into a television series in Japan in the 70s, um, which is a good television series. It follows the manga, I think, a bit more closely than this. Um, again, they did another one in the early 90s. Uh, and interestingly, in 2012, uh, director Justin Lin, who helmed several of the Fast and Furious movies, as well as the most recent Star Trek film, was announced as the director of an American remake of Lone Wolf and Cub with the film's producer, Stephen Paul, acquiring the rights in 2016. So that's potentially something that's, that's on the cards, but who knows? You know, the the remake of The Warriors has been in development hell for years, so it may not be something that even happens. Uh, interestingly enough, I, mean, I think you could probably see like Quentin Tarantino doing like a remake of this, couldn't you? Cause it, and he was probably somebody who was, I don't know for sure, but it was probably somebody who was just going, going gaga about this movie when it came out. Okay. So let's get into the plot of it then, Tom, we can kind of discuss things as we go. So, you know, the opening narration by Gibran Evans, it, what it serves to do is cut away some of the quote unquote fat that's in the original where we look, we actually learn a lot more about Ogami's job as the executioner. We learn why he's become a disgraced executioner. Um, that is not explained within Shogun Assassin. So instead, they very quickly move through the events here at the very beginning where we learn that Ogami Yitu, his wife, is murdered. You know, Daigoro's mother is murdered. And Ogami Yitu, is, he decides to to, you know, pursue an act of vengeance, a plan of vengeance. And... You know, Itu is a patient man. So, you know, if you're looking at the Lone Wolf and Cub series, it, it, you know, it does take him six movies before he gets close to, you know, taking out vengeance on the Shogun. In this movie, he's called the Shogun. In the Lone Wolf and Cub, he's called Retsudo. And he is the, he, essentially in the original movies, he sets up the um, the murder of his army. And there's, there's more to the reason why he's after Itu than than what we see in Shogun Assassin. Shogun Assassin is not necessarily that interested in explaining that. But we get those early scenes there, Tom, and, and I want to come to you now, where um, we see the murder of the wife, and then we get introduced to, you know, we get a scene of uh, Itu with the baby car and Daigo, and how they use the baby car as a weapon within itself. What did you think of that? Could you imagine someone doing something like this now, you know? We're, we're going to take these two uh, films that were made in Japan or, or whatever, and we're, we're going to chop them up and we're going to, uh, you know, simplify them and put a voice over them. And, you know, maybe there's an example of someone actually doing that now, but people will be up in arms about it. You know, people really get angry at, you know, Western remakes and that kind of thing. So to chop a movie up and, and splice it together into one, Man, people would get annoyed. Well, I just wanted to interject. In, in recent history, um, it happened with the horror film The Descent, where you remember when they released it in America, they chopped the ending off of it so that they because there were there are two endings 
on the, sorry spoilers by the way there are two endings on the descent where it looks like the the woman has gotten out mm. and then she's getting away in a car and then actually it flashes back and you realize that no she's stuck in the cave presumably forever or that they unfortunately they changed her fate in the sequel in in the american ending they cut off the the bit at the end where she's stuck in the cave. So it just looks like she got out at the end and it's, yay, happy time. She got away from the evil creatures that are in down in the hole. Um, so, you know, it things like that still happen, unfortunately. You know, even if you look at remakes, like, you know, remake of Mar- that great horror film, French horror film Martyrs, you know, the American remake of Martyrs is like ends happily. <laughs> like It's like there's no, you know, there's no nastiness at the end of it. It's not quite the same thing, but, you know, I can even think of now this is, this wasn't a pair of scissors wasn't taken to this in quite the same way, but when they released the martial arts film, the raid mm. in America, well, they had a completely different soundtrack on it. They had a soundtrack that was done by one of the guys from Lincoln park in it. So, you know, to give it a different feel that would perhaps the music would perhaps resonate better with a Western audience. So, you know, these things still happen, but on this scale, actually taking two movies that were made in the early seventies and saying, Nope, I'm going to splice them together. I'm going to cut out all the stuff that I think is is fat and waste and just give you the violence that you want primarily. It's a pretty bold move. It is. It is. And I mean, I, I take on board what you're saying about those things, but, but I don't think it's, it is on the same scale, you know, re- remakes is no. one thing. Um, but to, to do this, I think people, people will be up in arms now. And I don't necessarily agree with that, to be honest. I, I think so, you know, I, I don't necessarily think, that it is a bad thing that a you know Sergio Leone's um a fistful of dollars is a remake of Yojimbo there's mm. films made in other countries that are remakes of american films as well it it's a two-way street you know and while i agree with the fact that yes you know there's nothing wrong with these films in their original state they should be shown blah, blah, blah. I do think a lot of the time there's a lot of posturing on the part of the people who are making these arguments as if to say, look at me, look how much I love this foreign movie. You know, it's more about them than it is that the product itself. Um, But that's a different argument. I'm going to get myself into hot water in a minute. But um, (laughs) Yeah, I think 10 minutes ago I asked you what you thought of the baby car. (laughs) Oh, yeah. The knives on the cart are really cool, (laughs) you know. Um, (laughs) It's unique, isn't it? Yeah. You know, to be honest, the the kid who does the voice, I think, knowingly or unknowingly, I really like what he did. There's a sort of sadness to him. There's a a slight tinge of sadness to, to the story he's telling um that that i really like and I, and I do wonder how much of that was intended or is it just a kid put in front of these lines saying right read this you know um and that's just the way he talked i don't know but you can project sometimes onto things and i think in the context of the movie that is quite a, a sadness to him that that i really liked so i i, re- I really like the kid's voice in it you know i think the kid does really well in that interestingly enough as an adult he ended up doing a commentary commentary track mm. audio commentary track for it so he's always been a big fan of his work in the movie i think the kid does a good job you know it, it, it is you know i'm not one of those posturing people i try not to be it is it's a strange thing because you can liken what's done here a little bit to what the studio forced harrison ford to do 
on the the theatrical cut of Blade Runner where they had him put a narration over the top. Yeah. Um, in order to explain it, because the studio felt that the film wasn't uh, it wasn't understandable, it didn't have enough clarity to it, people wouldn't get the plot. Um, a similar thing happened with the film Dark City, um, where the like they gave, because the movie the producers felt that the movie would not be relatable to a theatrical audience, they ended up like they basically gave away the ending of the movie at the beginning of the yeah. movie. Um, so the narration itself, I really enjoy it, and I really enjoy the vibe of the movie in general. Um, the narration does essentially simplify things for people who the producers felt weren't smart enough to get it. Um, the narration is also there, of course, because they've cut so much of the plot out in order to 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 do to you know fulfil their specific vision. So it, it is a weird thing that Shogun Assassin is a byproduct of of, of somebody's original vision, then taken and cut to pieces and kind of restitch back together as part of somebody else's vision. So I've always been a little bit conflicted about that, that aspect of it, that it, this isn't the vision of the original director, Kenji Mizumi. This is the vision of Robert Houston yeah. taking bits of his work and simplifying it down. Um, you know, but the concept of the character is so cool. Yeah. You know, it, it he's such a, it's such an iconic image to see this man, this samurai, this wandering ronin, cloaked in black, with that sword, pushing the baby cart along the road with this little kid inside, living what I think has to be quite a difficult life, Tom, which is always having to look over his shoulder. You know, you can never truly feel safe. At the same time, it's made you're it's made aware you're made aware very very quickly, really by that initial opening. Um, sequence where he's pushing the baby cart along and then you see some violence that happens there that Ogami Ito ain't nobody to fuck with. Mm, absolutely. And so it's almost like they need to be looking over their shoulder for him because he's not looking for them. They're looking for him. But yet when they find him, they're, they're as good as dead anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he is a he is like a an overpowered character, you know, I suppose a little bit like, you know, Bruce Lee in, in in the Bruce Lee movies where Bruce Lee is just practically like now and again, he lets somebody get a kick in or something, but for the most part, he's going to demolish people. It too is the same way. And I, I really enjoy it. Cause when I, the first time I ever saw anything from the lone cub, lone wolf and cub movies was on a clip show on TV many, many, many years ago when I was a young and that would show clips from, from the lone wolf and cub movies. And I would think what a fascinating concept. This looks so cool. How do I get mm. it? Unfortunately, very, very difficult to acquire at that time until Vipco came along, the famous Vipco, Tom. Um, it was a, a UK-based la video label who capitalised on, you know, censored films and films that were banned. And, you know, they put the, their famous video artwork and DVD artwork of it saying, this film's been banned, this film's, you know, extreme violence and all the rest of it. So very, very appealing to a guy like me, and I ended up getting it on DVD. And... and um, and, you know, and there's so much about this that's iconic. I'd like to talk to you. We'll sort of move through the plot as, as we go. Because a lot a lot of this movie, there is a plot there, obviously, but a lot of this movie is about violence. I, it plays to me like a computer game, to be honest. You know what I mean? Mm. It's just like, who's, yeah. who's coming up next? Yeah, I mean, again, some of that is because of the editing mm. that's been done to this to make it, you know, this is very much, okay, we're going to pull out some of the political stuff. We're going to pull out some of the details of the lives of the Shogun and the Executioner and, and Itu's early life, some of the stuff where he stops and there's 
There's more. There's a lot more flesh on the bones of the Lone Wolf and Cub movies than there is in this. This one is, as you say, computer game. Go through a level, meet some bad guys, kill bad guys. Here comes a boss. Yeah. Kill the boss. Here's the next level. You know, and it's been designed in that way. I think um, to be that way. I'd like to talk to you about the music mm. because. The, so the music in this movie is not from the original, not from the Lone Wolf and Cub movies. It was made for the Shogun Assassin re-edit. And the music was... They stole it from Firecracker, didn't they, and put it in this. For, <laughs> oh, dear. There you go. You see? He, 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 he brings me in, and then he pushes me away um, in a way that I find discomforting. <laughs> um, no heathen. They... Stole this movie and put it in Firecracker. Now, the reason they did that is because uh, Roger Corman also released Firecracker. So they probably thought, hey, we'll just borrow yeah. that. And there, you know, remember I told you, you might not remember, it's fucking years ago now. But when we were reviewing Firecracker, there are things like when the, there's a love scene between the, the female character and the guy, and they're playing Daigoro's theme where he's playing about having a laugh, yeah. like you know, kicking rocks about. And it's like, it's very weird for me to have been exposed to that because I'm so used to, and I have to say, I do think the music in this movie is better than the music. I mean, obviously it's very eighties synthy. Um, people didn't like it when we reviewed firecracker, some people. And I said to you, I think it's because of firecracker. I think it, because it's associated with it. You, you, because the movie's not very good. You think the music's the music's not very good in so I happen to love the soundtrack of this. What do you think of it? Oh yeah, I think it was great. I can't remember what I thought about it. A firecracker, mm. to be honest. Maybe I said those things. I really don't know. But you know, I do love that synthy kind of and and this does remind me of a computer it does remind me of a bit of computer yeah. game music, but in the best way. Because a lot of that is, you know, that there's a reason why people are putting it on vinyl these days, you know video game music because um the there's some artistry there but i really like the music to be honest I, I thought it was um i thought it was great and it sort of builds up throughout the movie to the to the full-on you know um yeah. music so so i thought it was really good the i'll tell you something that does surprise me though because <laughs> because i knew it was a melding of two movies I thought I could tell where one ended and the other one began. Mm. I thought, you know, when, when we see them on the boat later on, I thought that's going to be where the cut is. You know, that's going to be the, because it, it's almost like it came to a conclusion before that. So I thought, yeah. right, okay, that's where the first movie ended and they've spliced on a bit of the second movie because it, it, it did start to drag a bit for me near the end. And that's the gripe that mm. I had with it. Once it's from the boat onwards, it, it sort of gets a bit like, okay, you know, get on with it. Um, yeah. So I, it surprises me actually that there's only 12 minutes of the first movie in it. And the rest of it is, is all the second movie. Yeah. I mean, I suppose they take, you know, a lot of the, the plot stuff from the first movie and then from the second movie, a lot of the violence um, and some violence from the first movie as well. I mean, you know, I personally don't find m much of it a drag. Mm. I mean, I do agree that after the boat sequence happens and then there's a long sequence where Itu and the Supreme Ninja and Daigoro, they're in a room, they get naked and she pulls them 
she pulls her um sorry he uh itu pulls her close to them so they can share body warmth it goes on too mm. long you know like I, I get the point you're cold I understand it, uh, but it goes on a little bit too long. And there are a few bits where I, I can definitely understand why you would feel that it drags. Now, I have to say, I'm I'm acclimated to the Asian way of doing things. Uh-huh. Some of these Chambara movies, these Jinogeki movies, period-based movies, um, there can be, I mean, if for example, The Seven Samurai is a long movie and it's got parts that are slow and there's not a lot happening. And you do kind of find yourself, if you watch enough of them acclimated to the, to the pace of these things, it's probably why Shogun Assassin was made in the first place because the Lone Wolf and Cub movies have their moments where they settle down and there's real dialogue and and world building. Mm. And that doesn't really happen in Shogun Assassin very much. So I don't, I don't see the drag as much as you do, but I understand why you see it. Um, I mean, so I suppose we're kind of moving towards the ending of it because it's difficult, I suppose, to say, you know, well, did you like this bit? Did you like this bit? Did you like this bit? In general, the violence itself, it's really well done, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But it becomes difficult for me to remember because there's just so many fights so and, much, yeah. you know, spit and blood everywhere. And it's it's all good stuff. You know, I, I sat and was completely entertained by it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, you know, like I said, you know, sitting in the grindhouse when you're used to watching whatever was on at the time and then seeing this, it must have been a revelation. Absolutely. And, you know, the way that that the Japanese were doing this kind of movie, if you look at, you know, the gore effects, yeah, the blood is is too red. You know, it looks like Mm. paint. That's the kind of blood they were doing at the time. I mean, you can make that same argument for against uh, Dawn of the Dead. You know, the blood didn't quite look as realistic as it could do. But this is one of the great examples of a, of a, um, a Chanbara movie that is full of spurting blood. So if you like, mm-hmm. and the Lone Wolf and Cub movies in general are that, you know, um, Itu severs arteries and they spray up in a way that they probably wouldn't um, in real life. But uh, it looks cool. <laughs> you know, yeah. it looks cool. Um, as we move towards the ending, one of the problems I had with Shogun Assassin is that for a lot, for many, many years, the Shogun Assassin was all there was. So the way that the film resolves and ends doesn't actually resolve the key issue, which is Itu wanting to kill the Shogun. Now, the reason that is the case is because, of course, there are other movies that then follow up on from that. And we didn't get more Shogun Assassin movies until later. I'll tell you about those in a little while, but how do you feel about the stuff that goes on in, in the sand dunes and the build up to the big battle? Cause there's a lot of bloodshed there. Yeah, it was all great stuff. Another aspect to it, you know, the claw where that guy just takes out like half a dozen people with his claw and that kind of thing, hiding under the sand, you know, all, all good stuff, all good stuff. Yeah. And you know, the way the movie ends is by Ogami killing the Shogun's brother and wow. that's how it finishes. So I, I can imagine that, People who saw this originally when it came out might have thought, okay, but when is he going to get around to killing the Shogun? Um, well, we, unfortunately, you wouldn't have found that out for many years unless you happen to look up. I say look up, you know, there was no internet when this came out. So find information perhaps in a magazine or something, you know, a film magazine, you might have been able to find out, you know, where the where this movie came from so you could source the original somehow. 
But you know, we're 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 lucky now that we have access to that sort of information. We can if you watch this and you happen to enjoy it, you know where the originals come from. Um, you know, you can source them out very easily. Back then, it must have felt like, wow, I've I've seen this incredible thing. How am I ever going to see it again when it goes out of cinema? Because there wasn't even a VHS tape at that point. Uh-huh. Um, so amazing stuff, really. And and I have to say, this film, I think, especially this one. I mean, the Lone Wolf and Cub films i think fit into the grindhouse mold anyway but this re-edit especially i think fits that mold much better much much better than the chant of jimmy blacksmith i have to say um, <laughs> this is more like what you would expect to be on the section three list right yeah yeah absolutely absolutely so uh, i suppose in, in closing really tom um you know how i feel about it i i do love this movie i prefer the lone wolf and cub movies if i'm honest because for me they flesh it out for me, that's what I go to. Those are my go-to movies. Um, I I revisit Shogun Assassin now and again when I want a simplified, concise version of it. But for me, the originals is where, it, is where it's at. But, um, you know, in, in closing, how do you feel about it? Overall, you enjoyed it, right? Absolutely. You know, and I'm kind of glad that the two things exist. You know, I don't know whether purists like one more than the other. I suppose you... You are a purist, but I don't think you have that aspect to you where you you would discount something like this because obviously you like it too. Mm. But I I would really like to watch those movies. You know, if there's a reasonably priced Blu-ray release, I think Criterion did them in the US. Mm-hmm. Um, then I would certainly check it out. Um, but I also like that this one exists. You know, the the one where you can just throw it on, have a beer, and just sit and. And just enjoy the violence of it. You don't need all the world building. You can just enjoy a, a nice bloody spectacle. So that's great. But so it, it's got me on two counts really. I want to check out those original movies, but I like that this one exists too. Awesome. Well, I'm really, really happy about that. So I was a bit worried I was going to have to come down hard <laughs> in you like a ton of bricks. But um, no, you've um, you've pleased me. <laughs> and uh, I, no, I'm just. I'm really glad that you got to see in it what I think a lot of people see. It's just good, splashy entertainment, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes you need that, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let me tell you how you can get this film, Tom. Uh, Eureka Entertainment did release Shogun Assassin fully remastered on Blu-ray in the UK by itself in 2011. This release features two commentary tracks, a video interview with Samuel L. Jackson talking about the movie, plus other extra tidbits. However, the best version of the film to acquire is as part of the Lone Wolf and Cub collection from Criterion, who released brand new remasters of all the Lone Wolf and Cub films, as well as Shogun Assassin in 2017. The Shogun uh, Assassin remaster is, I believe, the one from the Eureka release and is included as an extra on the final disc. Now, they did do a UK release of this set as well. I have it up there. Um, so if you want it in the UK, you can get it. Last time I checked on Amazon, I think it was about £40. All six films, loads of extras, booklets, and you get Shogun Assassin thrown as an, in as an extra as well. Um, Criterion also released this same set as Tom was saying in America for our friends over there. And there's also a Shogun Assassin box set released in America. Um, this is a Blu-ray box set that contains Shogun Assassin plus the other Lone Wolf uh, films dubbed into English and given new titles. All films after Shogun Assassin are largely left untouched aside from english dubbing so what they ended up doing years later is releasing the lone wolf and cub movies um they never actually released the full version of the first or second movie uh what they did was 
they had Shogun Assassin be the first and second Lone Wolf movies together, and then they did the third Lone Wolf movie as Shogun Assassin 2, the fourth Lone Wolf movie as Shogun Assassin 3, and so on. Um, okay. So, yeah. So if you happen to have seen only the Shogun Assassin series, you've not actually seen the full version of either Lone Wolf 1 or Lone Wolf 2. You've seen bits and pieces of it. Um, so Lone Wolf and Cub, I think, is the set to get. But um, check out Shogun Assassin. You know, you can see it practically. It's a shame that it's not streaming at the moment, Tom, because I know you were looking for a stream of it originally. Because um, yeah. I think it'd be a great film to, you know, pop it on Amazon Video Prime or even Netflix. I think it would be more more at home on, on prime video. Um, you know, it'd be, it should be more accessible to people, but, um, yeah, I'm a big fan of, of all that. And I'm going to shut up now. Good, good. Well, I'm, you know, I'm glad I got introduced to it and, uh, I've got a bit of catching up to do, I think. So, uh, shall we see what other people think and get to some feedback? We've had an email from Amanda that was sent in April of 2017. And she says, wow, guys, what a double you put together for this episode. I'm not sure I'm remembering this correctly, but isn't it right that you put these movies together because they were two films you didn't know how to pair up? Yes. They work together in a strangely symbiotic way, mostly in terms of revenge leading to unrepentant violence. Of course, it was a lot lighter in Shogun Assassin, but I think the two worked together rather well. Jimmy Blacksmith was freaking amazing. I had no prior knowledge of the film and had assumed it fell into that very tenuous Indian exploitation subgenre that movies like Ghost Dance and Fleshburn sit so well in. You were going to say that, weren't you, Chris? I was, yeah. Ghost Dance and um, Flash Dance, my favourites of, of the uh, the Indian thing. It is, of course, nothing like that. And it was a real difficult watch in so many ways, but in the right ways too. I guess what looms largest for me is that Jimmy Blacksmith is incredibly sympathetic in the first half, superior to some of his bosses, because he can read and is just a good person, but obviously troubled by trying to do right by the white standards of what that right thing may be. Even if it means diluting his blackness by having children with a white woman, as he's advised to do early on. Then he kills people that you never think are going to be the victims. It's so upsetting. Teenage girls, little kids, older women, and their deaths are brutal. So the question is, do we feel for Jimmy, or do we start to fall into that he's just a savage kind of thinking, which the white characters attest to? And this is where I think the audience falls somewhere in between. Jimmy's rage is so scary but it's delicately handled by introducing us to the legacy of bigotry he has to endure, and the film carefully gives him a humanness, for lack of a better word, so that he never becomes a monster. It's so complicated, and I love that. I also really loved his brother Mort, and it was sad to see the actor Freddie Reynolds did not make another film. He reminded me a touch of Lenny Henry, and I wished they had made a buddy cop movie together. Wow, okay. (laughs) Alas, at least I have Jimmy. I think I can see why this film upsets censors, but it's definitely one of the few films on the Section 3 list that I would declare as a legitimate work of art, with the last horror film following close behind. (laughs) Haha, just kidding. 
As for Shogun, this was my first watch, and I found it a little confusing. I will say the soundtrack was boss, and I think it's important to have badass guys with dad bods. It's subversive. Overall, I enjoyed it, but I can't say it's something I'd watch again. That ninja lady who jumped out of her dress and ran backwards was awesome, though. I could watch that part all day. Also, also we watched it on an old VHS tape with the pan and scan, which is the only way to watch these movies for me. And apparently before Shogun was recorded on it, someone had recorded a Jackie Chan movie called My Lucky Stars. So we watched the second half of that after Shogun ended. Samo Hung is also a badass with a dad bod. That was our theme for the evening. Hope you are well. Looking forward to the episode. And that's from Amanda. Thank you, Amanda. Hello, Mr. Chris, Mr. Tom. This is Myron from Ancient Slumber, leaving you a little bit of feedback. I have to say these two choices on the Section 3 list are not what I expected. I remember Shogun Assassin. I saw it way back when it came out. Probably when it hit VHS or possibly the local, what we called on TV subscription. Um, great martial arts movie. I know Chris, you're a huge, huge fan of it, and I can understand why. And it's it is great. I know it's the Americanized version of you know the real story and the uh, manga that's uh, been very long running. But it's a great story. I love the kid narration. It's got great action. It's it's just it's a really really great '80s martial arts style movie. It's got everything. Really, I mean, just it's top notch. Then I watched the chant of Jimmy Blacksmith. I guess it's the racial stuff in here that got on the Section Three list. I, I'm not really sure. It's not horribly violent. It's a really uncomfortable watch. I mean, you know, you're looking at. Uh, period of time, turn of the century, and how Aboriginals were treated in Australia. Um, it's a very stark look at things. It seems to be a very honest look of things. It really was a very good movie. I don't. It's one of those kind of for me one and done though. You, you almost are left with a feeling of being depressed after the movie. Very well acted, and it's. <laughs> When you realize it's probably based in, in truth, it just adds another layer of, of dimension of, you know, kind of really how poorly some folks were treated at the turn of the century. And even, you know, now living in America, how poorly folks are still treated to this day with, with those kinds of attitudes. It, it was very timely, very stark commentary on society and and sadly, it's still to this day, you know, what, 100 years later, that it's still very prevalent. Great movie. Um, I think I gave it four out of five on Letterboxd. I don't think I'll ever watch it again, but I was really, really glad that I saw it. This, These two films being so, so good are really a departure for some of the dreck that's on Section 3. It's almost sad that these got added to the Section 3, or maybe not. Maybe it made them more popular. But nonetheless, really enjoyed these two. I know, Chris, you're going to go over and over on Shogun Assassin. I just wanted to let you know how much I really, really like the movie as well. Uh, it took me back to uh, yesteryear watching martial arts flicks in late middle school, early high school. It, it, yeah, these were just two good movies, and 
anyways, keep up the show. Love the show. Thank you so much for the opportunity to provide feedback. Howdy again, fellas. Mighty good to hear from you once more. It's me, Andy Roberts, and I'll start with uh, Shogun Assassin. As I'm sure you know, this movie's a re-edit of the first films in the Lone Wolf and Cub series, with a simplified plot to enhance the violence and the scenes of action. It's hugely enjoyable and full of gory arterial sprayings, heads split in twain, and limbs being lopped off left, right and centre. Japanese samurai movies in general have this similar attitude uh, to the depictions of gore, almost like Zatuichi. In this film, I believe it's to mimic the style of the manga origins. It's a fairly cheesy affair too, with some of the most insane over-the-top dialogue you could imagine, although the lip-syncing is noticeably decent in comparison. Standout oddities are the Supreme Ninja's maniacal laugh, the Shogun's bristling angry performance, and the bladed perambulator, of course. The gore scenes, as well as the slightly rapey scene where Lone Wolf undresses the Supreme Ninja, likely got the film on Section 3. It's commonly mistaken as a full video nasty, though. The film is just that damn memorable. On to the next one, The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, which is a very different animal. It tells the true story concerning the integration of Australian Aborigines by white colonists. The white characters spew truly revolting epithets and attitudes to Jimmy and his ilk, resulting in some pretty uncomfortable scenes. Our protagonist also tries to do the right thing every time, and is met with the brazen hypocrisy of the whites. When the violent revenge kicks in, it's well executed, no pun intended, and, but it does leave me feeling a little ambivalent too. The school teacher character is the only one to try confronting the real problem by listing all of the improvements we've given to blacks, which of course is a nothing of the sort. The film is very well acted throughout and the score is suitably beautiful as well. It's, it's a shame that it hasn't seen wider distribution, as it's actually a, quite a thought-provoking piece of cinema. It's most likely the racial insults that put this on Section 3. Robert Endelson's Fight for Your Life was on the nasties list for the exact same reason. But also, the slightly graphic portrayal of children being hacked or shot was probably problematic, but overall, this film's a cut above the usual fare that you'd expect on the nasties list. I'll finish off with a question for you guys. What's your favourite Jello? And really interested to hear your thoughts on these films, guys. Take care of yourselves. So there we go. That was uh, a bit of feedback from the archives there. They probably forgot that they even sent them. But uh, Andy, thanks very much, guys, to Amanda, Myron and Andy for sending that in. Andy posed as a little question there, Chris. Do you want to quickly go first on that one? Yeah, it's it's you know this is a, like a because we're listening to that clip live so it's a it's an on the spot reaction uh to that question normally i'll have a bit more time to think about it i mean it comes do you consider Suspiria to be a giallo mm, i personally don't i don't know whether you know purists would balk at that but i don't myself but uh, if you <laughs> want to say it is then yeah go for it i think it's got Obviously, elements of Gialli to it. I mean, the, the purest example of it for me, and the film that I think is the is the ultimate classic, is Deep Red. Mm. Um, superb soundtrack, great violence. Argento at the top of his game in that. Um, I also really like Torso, which is a film by uh, Sergio Martino, I think it is. Um, 
I really like that. Um, there's quite a few that I really like. I really like Opera, which is a Dario Argento film as well. But I'll go for, you just to nail it down to one, I'll go for Deep Red. Yeah, you know, I wish I could pull out some little kooky obscurity and say, oh, look at this, you know, or, or something like that. But I have to go with the obvious, and I'm going to say Deep Red as well. Um, I first saw that in a, at a cinema screening, and I was just completely bewitched by it um, ever since. And then, you know, we've had some great releases of it over the years. So I have to go with that. I, I wish I was um, a bit less predictable, but what can you do? Thanks for your question, Andy. Yeah, if we had more time to think about it, we probably could have pulled out a few that are quite obscure. But to me, Deep Red is is it's the iconic one. You know, his his execution of the story, his execution of the murders, the violence, the way that the camera, everything is just expertly done, I think. Mm -hmm. And um, funny fact about Deep Red, if you, because obviously we, we now, when the film came out originally, of course, it was in cinemas. There was no such thing as a home release. If you got the Blu-ray version of it now, if you pause it at, near the beginning of the movie where um, your man there is walking through the house, if you actually pause it at the bit where he goes past the mirror, you can actually see the killer within the first five minutes of the movie. <laughs> so you can, <laughs> hey, if you want to spoil it for yourself, if you've not seen it, you can do that. But uh, yeah. Okay. Well, I guess that's uh, that's all from us, isn't it? And usually at this point we would say what was coming up next, but I think we are a little unprepared. It was a case of, listen, we need to get the Strange and Deadly show going again. Let's just do these two movies. And like I said, they were, they were a bit of a sticking point for me, these ones. Thankfully, it's turned out to be a good experience in the case of Shogun Assassin. Um, and a worthy experience in, in the case of Jimmy Blacksmith. So, But I'm glad they're done. I know, and I want to get to a bit of splatter, a bit of exploitation, whatever the list has for us next. I, uh, I'll be happy to go to it. But we need to check out what that is, and then uh, and that will be on the next show. And we're trying to hopefully do that quite soon, aren't we? Yeah, and I just want to say that it's very likely that we'll announce what the films are going to be and what the theme will be for the next episode, episode 35. So uh, if you're wondering about that, we'll probably announce it uh, before we release the episode. So don't you worry. This has been fun, Tom, to come back to the scuzzy side of things. We've been on the uh, flying about the Marvel Cinematic Universe for a while on Lost in the Omniverse, and it's nice to be home, I think. It is. I think we're probably at our most relaxed in this one because, you know, we try and keep it PG and Lost in the Omniverse, but I can never trust you to do that. And you're always trying to be on your best <laughs> behaviour as well. Um, come but, on, Tom. I think the Strange and Deadly show is our, our kind of spiritual home, isn't it? Yeah, I'm dangerously unreliable and I don't want to be and I will get better and I apologise. I'm sorry. It's okay. And, um, so what are you going to do okay. now, Tom? Are you going to pop off and nibble on some broccoli? What's 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 the rest of your, What does the rest of your night entail? Probably just that, Chris. You know, break out the broccoli and I will be happy. Brilliant. I'm going to go away and... Um, chew on a big fucking chicken fried chicken drumstick because i'm a big fatty so uh we'll see you later folks thanks for listening goodbye for now i'm christopher clayton and i'm tom elliott <laughs> what a mess of an ending goodbye everybody bye You've been listening to The Strange and Deadly Show. 
music by Danny Davis, artwork by Dark Inc. One, and presented by Chris Clayton and Tom Elliott. To listen to the back catalogue or to check out other shows on the network, please visit strangeanddeadly.com. <laughs>